Well, now it's time for us to go back to where it all began, which is North America. Um, and our final panel uh, is two experts on the North American end of the shale revolution. And I stress that because uh, both of them know not only the United States energy market very well, but also the Canadian side of things. Um, and when I wanted to have a panel on the shale revolution as a North American phenomenon, and an unconventional energy revolution in North America, the two people who immediately popped into my head were Dove Ziegler and Chris Sands. Uh, Chris Sands uh, is senior research professor and director of the Center for Canadian Studies at SICE. Uh, um, right now he's the G. Robert Ross, Distinguished Visiting Professor of Canada-U.S. Business and Economic Relations. That makes for a very large business card, having all that up on, the, up on, the, up, up on this in very small print in the process. Uh, and he's also a fellow at the Border Policy Research Institute uh, in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, he earned a B.A. in Political Science at McAllister College from my hometown in Minneapolis. And uh, he's also has an MA, MA and PhD in Canadian Studies and International Economics from SICE. Dov Ziegler is also a SICE boy, uh, who in fact worked with the legendary and uh, uh, the late, um, the name just went out of my head, um, Fuad Ajami, uh, in his studies and his work there. Uh, Dove is now financial markets economist at Scotiabank's Global Banking and Markets Group in New York. Um, and before joining Scotiabank, he was an associate covering global macro and special situations, uh, investing at a Canadian fund management company. Dove Ziegler is uh, one of the uh, people who I look to not only for expert advice, but also outside of the box advice uh, and thinking about a whole range of energy issues. And if there's anyone I think who will help bring in sort of a fresh perspective, a new perspective about the question of the shale revolution and its present impact and future impact um, on, on North American relations, particularly US-Canada relations, there's no one better next to Chris Sands than Dove Ziegler. So gentlemen, please. All right, thank you very much. Um, thanks for the kind introduction. Uh, it's nice to have this uh, Johns Hopkins party going on to uh, end this day of, of great uh, panels. It's great to be here with Chris. And thank you all for coming. So uh, those formalities uh, having been dispatched with, I want to speak about uh, pretty much three things today. Uh, I'm going to answer three questions. Uh, one of them is, is the shale revolution over? Uh, hint, no. Um, the second is, why haven't lower oil prices helped U.S. consumers? You know, we heard a lot about how they would, and many say they haven't, but in fact, uh, they have. As a fit panelist said earlier today, however, it's important to understand the magnitudes involving uh, how important this is for the U.S. economy. It, it matters, but, but not as much as many make it out to matter. Uh, and then the third question is, you know, American oil revolution, shale revolution, or, or North American oil revolution with a heavy emphasis on Canada. We'll just look at what's happened to the dynamics uh, in the oil market market and how they've been impacted by, uh, of course, uh, the Shell Revolution's principal uh, effect, which has been the decline in global oil prices. The Shell Revolution has been going on for a while in the United States. Uh, the United States has been adding close to a million barrels per day of uh, production for the last you know, four or five years. Uh, and of course, one might say, but the oil price has only been falling for you know, a bit more than a year and a half. Uh, so what gives? And the, the answer is that oil, at least the oil market's been displaying or had been displaying the impact of the uh, Shell Revolution. You know, dating back, really, and you can see this in the chart on the left over there, to 2011, the chart on the left there shows you oil prices, different oil prices, uh, oil prices in China, oil prices in Russia, uh, the Brent oil price, which is the uh, principal seaborne price in Europe, 
and uh, WTI, West Texas Intermediate Oil, which is the principal benchmark on, in the continental United States. Uh, and what you see is they all began diverging after never diverging, essentially, uh, in 2011-12. And this was a function of the fact that there was a lot more oil in the United States than anywhere else. And what's more, this impact was even more marked in Canada. Canada uh, produces heavy oil, which we'll get to later. And the disjunctions between Canadian prices, the one benchmark that uh, can be used to approximate Canadian prices is WCS, Western Canada Select. That's the gray line in the chart uh, on your right. Uh, and uh, that, that was already diverging tremendously from WTI because of this just saturation of oil uh, in the continental uh, United States and Canada. And what changed, of course, is that even though American oil production continued to increase, and that's the gray line on this chart, uh, outages, unplanned outages, particularly as a result of geopolitical conflagrations in North Africa, the Middle East, and uh, into Persia, uh, resulted in unplanned shutdowns of oil production worldwide that uh, equaled or exceeded the increase in uh, U.S. production uh, over the course of 2012, 13, uh, and into 2014. All of a sudden in 2014, the American shale oil revolution continued apace. Uh, unplanned shutdowns of uh, oil capacity in uh, the aforementioned countries uh, slowed down or couldn't keep up. Uh, and the result was that there was a true global glut of oil. So this has been the principal impact of the uh, shale oil revolution, as far as I could tell, uh, on the world. That's the first order uh, result, which is the oil price fell. It fell because of this abundance of oil supply coming out of the United States. Uh, and you know, when I last checked in with you uh, folks uh, at the Hudson Institute last year, uh, the hypothesis that I advanced at that time uh, was that this year would be a year of geopolitics-induced uh, uh, increases in uh, production. And it seems to be the case. You see in this chart that the blue lines, which represent Iranian unplanned oil production that was offline, uh, you know, are, have fallen. Iranian oil production is coming back on. That's one of the reasons we've seen tremendous volatility uh, in the oil market uh, late last year into the start of this year. Uh, and of course, uh, like so many things uh, that are done by uh, centrally uh, commanded governments, uh, the uh, hoped for increase in production now, of course, is not coming on as quickly as was promised. So that's one of the reasons why you've seen a, a little uptick in the oil price over the last uh, number of weeks. But uh, be that as it may, um, this is how we got to where we are, um, but what are the ramifications? So the ramifications economically have been pretty uh, severe. The decline in oil prices have, has increased the cost of financing for energy companies, however you look at it. This chart over here shows you the option-adjusted spread, which is a way of looking at the credit spread, the cost in basis points or percent or tenths of or hundredths of a percentage point um, to finance uh, a uh, oil company relative to a treasury uh, note. Uh, the chart on the left shows you investment-grade companies. Oh, sorry, the chart on the top shows you investment-grade companies, and the chart uh, below shows you high-yield uh, companies, companies that issue at uh, higher interest rates. And uh, the numbers are huge. Uh, the financing cost for a high-yield issuer has gone from, call it, 350 to 400 basis points over treasuries to as high as uh, 1,500 basis points. That's to say a 15% interest rate uh, at times uh, in the last three months. So uh, this is just one way of looking at the uh, cost of finance uh, for uh, energy companies as a result of the decline uh, in the oil price. And it's hard to get good volume data on how much financing activity has actually been happening uh, in the last year. Uh, but all the anecdotal evidence points to more difficult financing conditions, as uh, illustrated by the price, and uh, difficulty uh, accessing capital markets um, for uh, energy companies, at least uh, a need to access capital markets for high-yield issuers at extremely uh, onerous uh, uh, interest costs and, uh, and also an equity market that's been difficult to access. So that's a, another uh, impact of the shell revolution in terms of the, uh, the financing world. So what it meant in terms of companies' behavior. So there's good news. I mean, the other thing that I advanced, uh, the other proposition I advanced when I was last here uh, was that uh, the unique thing about the uh, shale uh, revolution was its adaptability. Uh, so uh, there was an ability for companies to actually idle uh, what they had found and then access it at higher prices. And we saw that actually play out last year. Uh, oil prices were much lower, say, in January of last year than they were in, say, June. And U.S. oil production picked up in the middle of last year as companies used the futures market to lock in higher oil prices and access their backlog of wells, often called the frack log. And uh, this uh, chart over here shows you uh, the so-called frack log. 
And one of the, uh, one of the things that it de demonstrates is that there's been this uh, increasing quantity of uh, what are called uh, drilled but not completed wells. Uh, the inventory, however, has stabilized. It was growing a lot, and now it's not growing. What this tells you is that the uh, increased cost in uh, access, to access capital markets for oil companies uh, has finally resulted in a slowing down of the accumulation of uh, well inventory. Uh, and what that points to, moving forward at least, is while on the one hand there's a huge amount of well inventory, uh, on the other hand, at least it's not growing anymore. So for those who are looking for an uptick in oil prices at some point in the next you know, year, two years, three years, this uh, would be you know, seen as a hopeful trend uh, because it implies that uh, at least you know, the inventory will be drawn down at some stage. So the question is at what stage and at what cost? So we, we heard a lot about how there really is no break-even price uh, for shale. Uh, there's just a spectrum of prices for, by different projects. Here's an illustration of a, a variety of different uh, Texas-based uh, um, uh, you know, estimated break-even WTI prices for uh, fracking uh, companies. Uh, these are all oil. Uh, these are companies that extract principally oil, not uh, natural gas. And what you see is that it ranges from a little bit more than 20 bucks to uh, more than 50. So there's a very broad spectrum, um, but the point is that with an oil price at around four, and this is a recent assessment, this, uh, that's to say it's an assessment based on the cost uh, structure for companies uh, as of, say, you know, last quarter as opposed to before this all occurred. And, and of course, the cost basis has gone down because the input costs for the oil industry have come down as, uh, as of course, there's been less demand for, you know, you name it, from wells to uh, labor. So the, this is the spectrum for fracking, and it shows you that it's pretty dynamic. Uh, even at these prices, there will be companies for whom it's uh, profitable to uh, access, say, the high yield market at a 15% interest rate. Um, in order to extract oil at a break-even price of, say, $25, which they can sell forward in the futures market at a price higher than $40. And they've been able to do that all year, even when the oil price was much lower. So for those guys, uh, it's tenable to continue borrowing at a high cost and uh, pumping. Of course, for, uh, you know, other, for higher cost and even the middle of the uh, spectrum, uh, you know, that's, that's less palatable, right? At a $30 break-even price with a 15% interest rate, that's not a whole lot of uh, room for maneuver. Now, in Canada, the story is somewhat different. In Canada, uh, these are the break-even costs for Canadian heavy oil projects, which are very different from fracking projects. These aren't projects that you could sort of idle. These are, these are gigantic mines. They're akin to, to gigantic mines. Uh, they require heavy machinery in order to construct. They're, the costs uh, to construct them are not measured in the single-digit millions or tens of millions, but are measured in the uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, and Chris can speak to this. And uh, as a result of the fact that the break-even price on average is, around, is between $40 and $50, and the low end of the spectrum is in the high 30s, um, and this is to capitalize the entire project, it makes very little sense to capitalize new projects, and there's been great difficulty in doing this. So there's been a slowdown in the extent of uh, activity uh, in Canada. So I think that the big you know, takeaway that you, one would have here is that the shale revolution is by no means over. There's a large backlog of uh, usable shale wells, and the, uh, the principal impact of, you know, so far has been not just to drive down prices, but to drive down prices and create a new regime within the United States that can continue to, uh, to uh, you know, adaptively change uh, production, even with higher fi financing costs, right? Which is, that's the interesting caveat. Now, th that last part is, is impossible to, add, to predict in a, in a holistic way, and it's likely there will be some, some consolidation over the next year or two. Uh, among companies that have to uh, use very high financing costs to access capital markets. But of course, there's a decent overlap between uh, break-even prices for companies and the interest rates they have to pay to access uh, at least debt capital markets. So the next thing I want to talk about is, is the economic ramifications of low oil prices. Uh, what have they been uh, so far? So you know, one thing I hear a lot of is that uh, you know, the U.S. economy is really sluggish. It's not growing rapidly. And the impact from the drop in oil prices has been so severe as to uh, possibly impede the American uh, economic recovery uh, or expansion at this stage, because the recovery, I think, ended around a year and a half ago or well above pre-crisis levels across most economic metrics in the United States. It's just been a very weak recovery. Um, and you know, last year, there were open questions. I mean, there was bona fide dispute about whether or not uh, employment would be helped or hindered by the uh, decline in oil prices, about whether or not the consumer would actually be strong as to whether or not uh, there would be capital investment, manufacturing output, government revenues, how would they fare? Uh, the answer is all these things have improved in the last year. 
Uh, U.S. employment was extremely strong in 2015. Uh, the pace of payroll growth was slightly slower than in 2014, so the acceleration was less, but it was still extremely strong growth by any uh, historical standard even uh, in terms of employment growth. Uh, this chart shows you uh, the contribution to uh, the percentage change in U.S. GDP from consumers. Uh, it was also uh, you know, very high. It was the highest uh, dating back to really the heyday of the uh, previous expansion, which is saying something considering how weak this expansion has been in the United States. Um, you know, the lower oil prices had something to do with that, although they weren't the principal factor. The principal factor was the change in employment. Um, U.S. GDP was fairly strong. It grew uh, around 2.5% uh, for most of uh, the last year and uh, the year before. This isn't strong by historical standards, but strong by the standards of this recovery, which might wind up averaging well below 2% in terms of its average pace of growth. Um, and, uh, you know, the CapEx was, you know, slowed down, but was positive and added to uh, U.S. GDP. Uh, and even manufacturing output was positive. A lot of people point to industrial production having fallen, but that had a lot to do with weather. Uh, if you take the manufacturing component out of it, it grew just le less rapidly than the year before. Uh, finally, government revenues overall in the United States were up quite considerably. Now, I tick all these boxes because if this, we are talking about North America. And um, in Canada, the opposite was true. There are very few countries uh, for whom you could say that there's an unambiguous impact from the decline in oil prices. I mean, even the United States, there are pros, there are cons. In Canada, it's almost all cons. Right? It's fascinating to see. I mean, the uh, unemployment rate in Canada has been rising. GDP is running at around 1% in both nominal and real terms. Uh, CapEx was extremely, extremely low. Uh, the Canadian dollar has weakened. It seems to be stimulating exports. Uh, that's the positive. But uh, the exports that's stimulating make up a very small share of the Canadian economy now uh, as a result of the uh, uh, way in which the ratios changed during the natural resources boom. Um, and you know, b better U.S. demand is probably the only positive you could really see for Canada. But is the U.S. demand better because of the decline in oil prices, or is it better because of you know, the way in which this expansion is carrying on, uh, notwithstanding any of the impact of the change in oil prices? Uh, government revenues are much lower. So in other words, across the spectrum of different uh, economic indicators that one would take a look at, uh, for a country that produces a lot of oil, you know, things have not been that great. Now, there are tremendous political implications for this, but I'll leave you with just one chart before passing things over to Chris. Uh, and that's a chart of the, uh, you know, what I call the North American oil revolution. Um, it also puts some things into perspective. Uh, this chart shows you cumulative American, Mexican, Canadian uh, oil production. Those are the uh, stacked uh, uh, colors at the bottom, the blue and the two grays. Uh, and the green line is cumulative consumption of uh, oil products. So for all the discussion of an American oil revolution and American oil abundance, which there is, it is worth, worth just getting the facts out there. The United States still does, on net, import oil. I mean, even North America, even after accounting for the whole North American-wide picture, which includes exports from Canada to the United States, all, virtually all of Canada's oil that is not consumed in Canada goes to the United States. The number is literally 99%. Um, and uh, Mexican uh, you know, oil exports to the United States, even after accounting for that. Uh, North America is still not energy independent, though it's much closer to being that in terms of oil uh, than it has been uh, pretty much at any time dating back to uh, you know, the post-Second World War period. So uh, it's been a great development. North America has had an oil revolution driven by uh, shale oil in the United States, but as well by the uh, development of the oil sands in Canada. Uh, you know, these sectors uh, you know, look as though they should be durable. Uh, moving forward, uh, even if their rate of growth is going to slow and they might even you know, see some small declines in production in the years ahead, uh, they won't be massive, I don't believe. Um, however, this has left the United States in a, in a stronger position. It has established uh, you know, oil import relations with countries outside of North America, uh, and there's no reason not to avail itself of them. But uh, this should also lend you know, some caution to this this view that says that all of a sudden there's an unlimited quantity of oil in the United States and, uh, and uh, America need not consider uh, you know, any aspect of, uh, of its uh, energy uh, dependence uh, when it looks at its uh, energy policy. So uh, those are just some sort of concluding uh, remarks that I'd make before, and I'll pass over to Chris. Thanks very much, Dov. And uh, it's nice to be back at Hudson. Um, I was at Hudson, as some of you know, for, for quite a while. And uh, although I'm an alumni now, it's always the most interesting conversation I'll have in Washington when you come to an event here. So I'm glad to be part of it again. And uh, as Arthur was uh, very 
gently suggesting in, my, uh, in his introduction of me, I went back to the school I graduated from to find a job. So you know the power of the alumni poll is always very strong with me, so I'm glad to be back. Thanks, Arthur. Uh, and thanks for organizing this conversation. I wanted to pick up really where Dov left off to talk about some of the politics that we're, we're facing. And it's an interesting moment for North America. Those of you who go back away will remember that when we negotiated the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement, we had an energy chapter. When we negotiated NAFTA, we did not, because the Mexicans objected to having NAFTA can address liberalization in the, in the energy sector. They weren't ready for it then. Um, nonetheless, uh, we got that agreement. Ten years later, it was the George W. Bush administration that attempted to advance the North American agenda beyond NAFTA with the Security and Prosperity Partnership in North America. And when he did, we saw, again, sort of a conservative view of how North America might work, heavy focus on energy security and energy trade relations, um, something that the Dick Cheney Energy Report addressed early on in the Bush administration, but that really took shape uh, in the working groups of the SPP. What we have now, which I think is really the first time we've really seen it, is three progressive leaders in North America taking a look at where they would like to go. And that it's not only Barack Obama here, Enrique Peña Nieto in Mexico, but Justin Trudeau, the newly elected prime minister in Canada. And as you might expect, rather than energy security, what they have focused on is the environment. Um, Dov and I come at this from the Canadian angle. And one of the interesting things about Canadian politics is there has been now for almost a decade a, a working hypothesis in Canada. And that is that if Canada made good faith efforts on the environment, it would provide cover for a conversation about market access for Canadian energy products, particularly through pipelines, that would be more constructive with the Obama administration. And this is something that Stephen Harper did not believe in, but that Justin Trudeau does believe in, and he has tried to advance first with aggressive commitments, not just to a two-degree increase in uh, efforts to limit global warming to two degrees centigrade, but actually to try to be even more restrictive on the Canadian side and reach only a 1.5 degree increase, uh, which will come at great expense, particularly to Alberta in Canada. The Prime Minister has made North American environment the centerpiece of what he hopes to be his next chance to see President Obama. He was here just a couple of weeks ago in Washington um, by hosting a North American Leaders Summit in Canada dates are we're still negotiating between June and July. The goal of that is an environment and climate technology accord between the three governments that would try to harmonize definitions of things like renewable energy, uh, measurements of carbon, and so forth, so that the three countries could advance very much their, their mutual goals at Paris, but in a regional fashion. Now, before you assume the Canadians are entirely altruistic, part of this is an attempt to hang on to something they felt they got out of the Obama administration. In the Clean Power Plan, there are some goodies for Canada, including a definition of Canadian hydropower as renewable for the purposes of displacing coal in the United States, something that they very much value, particularly Hydro-Quebec, Manitoba Hydro, uh, and to some extent, uh, BC Hydro as well. So there are some things they would hope to get in. They're hoping to also include a renewable fuel standard that would be one that would be friendly to, the, to uh, gasoline derived from Canadian oil and Canadian oil products. Um, so the Can Canadians come into this with, with a real agenda that is energy sensitive, but at the same time, they want to put environment first. Uh, and we'll see where that goes. For President Obama, I think this is an opportunity to secure his legacy. For President Peña Nieto, this is an opportunity to carry forth what Mexico has long wanted, which is to use technology to try to leapfrog as much as possible some of the challenges of developing, being a developing country, increasing your carbon emissions because of that growth that you want, uh, but at the same time trying to mitigate that with technology. While environment is front and center, at least for the next 10 months between the three countries, um, energy is still driving the dynamic. Now, people in Canada have observed that the American shale revolution in some ways makes Canada and the United States competitors, sort of on the idea that we're all producing oil and we're producing natural gas and we're trying to get into world markets. It's not entirely true in oil. As Dov mentioned, Canada's oil tends to be heavier and is a competitor for Mexican and Venezuelan oil than it is for, uh, for what the U.S. is producing. N nonetheless, there is a competition for access to global markets. And Canada is at a huge disadvantage in this regard. While they have decent production, about 3 million barrels per day coming out of both Alberta and to some extent offshore Newfoundland, 
They're at a disadvantage because their main routes to get that energy to market, with the exception of Newfoundland, which can put it on ships pretty easily, is through pipelines to the United States. Quite a few of them, 84 altogether, oil and gas pipelines, but it's exclusive capacity. And when, um, when Dov was talking about the discount that West Can Western Canadians select is trading at, that is largely because they're hostage to the U.S. market and with a limit on capacity. Um, that's something that they're very keenly aware of, and the big we were just in Alberta last week, a group of students and I, and um, the big talk, all the talk really, is about getting to tidewater with Canadian oil, either through British Columbia, where you have to go over the mountains. There are two big projects there, the Northern Gateway Pipeline, which is an Enbridge project, and the Trans Mountain Line, which exists now, going down towards the Pacific Northwest and, uh, and Vancouver. They're tripling the capacity of that line. It's a Kinder Morgan line. The problem there is that it goes through downtown Vancouver, which is always, uh, if you can imagine, sort of environmentally, uh, politically sensitive. Um, the other big bet, TransCanada having uh, shelved their plans for the Keystone Pipeline for now, not necessarily for indefinitely, um, are looking to build the Energy East Pipeline. They have an Energy East Pipeline, if you will. There's, there are gas lines going from Western Canada, where most of their current natural gas production is, to the Eastern Canadian markets. They're taking two of lines off and putting them to the service of oil rather than natural gas in the hopes of moving that oil to refineries that could be built in New Brunswick. There's also a refinery around Montreal, Dobbs hometown, but uh, interestingly, that's being served by the reversal of Line 9 coming out of Sarnia, which is providing some, some energy from Suncor, some oil from Suncor for those, those refineries. I guess I'm somewhat pleased that the Canadians are building these lines because they're starting to realize the politics of pipelines are difficult at home. It's not just mean old Nebraskans and Americans making trouble for them. It's hard everywhere, and they're starting to encounter those difficulties. But for Canada, where they're at, 3 million barrels per day of production is where they're going to stay unless and until they have an additional capacity to bring that oil to market. Um, add Keystone, add some of these pipelines, you could see them without a huge effort reaching 6 million barrels a day. They really have the capacity to double production, but they don't without the capacity to deliver that in, to, to market. Um, Mexico is in a similar dilemma. Mexico just finally decided to allow market forces into their energy sector. They had auctions to open up some of their offshore uh, to international investment, but the timing couldn't have been worse. Poor Mexico comes in at a low oil price market with oil that is difficult to access, so it's going to be costly in capital up front. Uh, there are people who will invest in this, but it's a long-term play for them. And that has meant that Mexico's production has continued to sort of flatline, taper off a little bit, um, as you saw in, in Dov's chart. And it's unfortunate for, for Mexico. In the long run, they will return as producers. They have all the elements there, but in the short run, they're also uh, like the Canadians, waiting for a capital expenditure, not pipelines, but actual offshore production, in order to be able to compete uh, internationally. Now, the story in gas is a little bit different. Um, all three countries have some gas potential, but interestingly, neither Canada nor Mexico has been able to develop that potential to its fullest. And so what's, what's fascinating is that as TransCanada is talking about diverting some of their gas capacity to move gas from Western Canada, Eastern Canada. Eastern Canada is displacing Western Canadian gas by buying gas from Marcellus, uh, which is creating a certain dependency. And while Mexico, we know, has the far end of Eagleford and uh, some of the Permian uh, basin that they can tap, Mexico isn't developing with hydrofracturing much of a production and, in fact, is importing more gas and we're seeing more pipeline production to sell American gas into Mexico. So where, where on oil, there is a competition slightly held in abeyance because of a lack of physical capital uh, investment in infrastructure. In gas, we're seeing growing interdependence because the U.S., for exactly the reasons we've been talking about all day, the more entrepreneurial spirit, the, the fact that we're talking about private landowners who are making gas plays uh, accessible, um, we're seeing both Canada and, and Mexico sitting uh, more quietly. Now, Canada, again, is hoping to get gas access to the West Coast. They have less capacity on the East Coast, um, but they are trying to move gas to the West Coast. There are five, six major projects, all of which are in some stage of development, not all of which will be completed. Um, you've seen the Petronas investment, which is sort of the lead investor in one of the big production facilities or the big export facilities at Kitimat. 
unlike the U.S., the trick for the Canadian LNG players is that in the U.S., you typically build an LNG port and then buy gas off the grid and then you sell it. So all you really need is the infrastructure to be able to liquefy and ship. In Canada, typically, there's more vertical integration. And so you build the pipeline to get to your port and you also probably are doing some of the natural gas development. That's really important for British Columbia which has natural gas reserves in the far northeastern corner of the province, fairly inaccessible because of the difficulty of getting across the mountains. Uh, BC has the added challenge of most of the land in BC, in fact, something like 150% of the land in BC being under an Aboriginal land claim. And those claims have not been settled. There's only one treaty with Aboriginal groups that applies uh, with regard to land claims in British Columbia, whereas Alberta has mostly settled. And that holds them back as well. Um, but. British Columbia is very eager to see some of these projects develop. Their cabinet has an actual Ministry for Natural Gas Development, which is developing a, uh, an aggressive plan to try to expedite permitting and move gas west. Meanwhile, um, Mexico really is at the starting gate. Uh, they would love to see gas help displace coal and expand their electricity capacity, which is not enough to sustain their growth. They're looking for American capital and investment because it's just very difficult to get the land rights cleared and get that production in, in Mexico in the short term, and they're in a hurry. So you put all of that together and you see this interesting dynamic of codependence, not only in terms of cooperation on the environmental file, which is where the leaders are going, but under the surface, a real cooperation or need for cooperation on energy development and a growing mutual interdependence. If there's anything that the leaders should be talking about but won't when they meet uh, in June, July this summer, uh, it's the need for connecting that infrastructure more effectively. Um, what we've seen just in the last few years, we talked about the geopolitics of energy, are real shifts that change where you may want to ship your energy to market from. A more effectively connected gas grid, a more robust connection of oil pipelines that connect us to the sea is all to the good. It allows us to take advantage of global shifts to get our oil and gas to the markets that need them and have North America truly be a supplier of choice as a relatively stable place. I haven't had a coup in a while here. Um, for the rest of the world. And I think there's tremendous potential in that, but we're a long way from where we should be in terms of coordinating and providing that mutual reliance. So still some work to do. With that, let me turn it back to Arthur or open up to your sure, questions. questions, and I'm going to claim prerogative as, as moderator to ask the first one. And I'm going to throw the term out to you, uh, North American Energy Block. Uh, this is an idea which sits out there and has dazzled some imaginations and confounded others. So I'm going to ask you both. Uh, I'm going to ask you first, what would a North American energy block look like? What are the components for that North American energy block? But what is it? Well, how, does it how would it work and how to function? Number two, the second question, you have to answer that one first. Then you get to answer the second question, which is, is it a good idea or not? Let me take a first stab. So sometime in October or November of last year, I think one could definitively say that there actually was briefly a North American energy block. Canada was, for practical reasons, incapable of exporting energy, uh, or at least oil, anywhere except but to the United States, right? Um, because of just the lack of infrastructure that Chris referred to. Mexico had deregulated uh, and allowed foreign access, albeit you know under the auspices of an auction process, but had allowed access to its energy sector, at least for exploration and development purposes, to American companies and global companies, but to American companies too, who were the favorites in that process uh, for the first time. And of course, the United States uh, did not allow the export of, uh, of oil except for you know, condom various byproducts of, uh, of uh, the oil uh, production process, which are similar to, uh, to, to uh, crude, but weren't exactly crude. And so at that moment, um, it was fair to say that there really was an American uh, energy block. Uh, the market had seen that American energy block coming for probably you know, a year, a year and a half, uh, maybe two. And that had precipitated a large decline in the global oil price. Uh, and there was a persevering uh, uh, advantage or, a de or a further decrease in um, US and Canadian oil prices. Uh, relative to world oil prices at that time. So I think it's actually fair to say that we briefly uh, had the benefit of seeing what that would cause. 
And what it caused was a situation that, I mean, precipitated a need for what one might uh, hyperbolically call uh, economic adjustment in Canada. Um, but it, but it as well, uh, you know, unsettled much of the world's oil market uh, in a manner that uh, I think uh, is generally uh, pretty positive. Uh, and so that was a big plus. Uh, that said, things have sort of changed, right? Because the idea of it, you know, it, we don't have blocks in you know, Canada, the United States, or increasingly even Mexico. The government has its hands off of most uh, economic decision making. I mean, Mexico's made very impressive strides uh, in this regard over the last, not, not few years, but really a couple of decades, actually. It's been a long process. Uh, for the better. And so, as a result, you know, it's hard to say that you know, the government of the United States, the government of Canada, the government of Mexico do not control their respective oil supply in the way that the government of Russia does, let alone the way that, say, the government of uh, Iran, uh, you know, uh, has control over its oil supply. So, it's, it, they're, they're very, very different beasts. Um, however, we did have an overarching regulatory environment in the United States, which, in one important respect, did control uh, American oil sales, as to say they were all inside of America, uh, and you know, there are there are negatives to that. Um, but uh, you know, if one were to uh, speak, and we've, we've spoken about them at length uh, today, uh, and celebrated uh, the removal of that barrier. Uh, however, if you know, one were to speak of a positive, the one positive would be uh, that at least it did create something of a block, because you knew that you know, America could take cheap oil from the rest of the world, um, and it could have the advantage, if it had produced enough oil, of even cheaper oil than other countries, and, uh, and somewhat of a buffer relative to uh, other countries. I know that said, you know, this was, the, the market's global, and the price of oil started to fall before the uh, American uh, ban on oil exports was removed, of course, by a lot. Um, so I think that, uh, that, you know, oil, even if it's uh, not fungible uh, physically, is uh, financially fungible, right? Um, you know, there are futures contracts everywhere, and anyone can buy any futures contract. And so you know, there, there, that did create a way uh, for the world to sort of, you know, make light of this effort uh, on the part of American legislators once upon a time to, uh, so to, in parentheses, secure uh, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the American energy supply. So uh, to answer your question, we had an, oil, an American, at least oil block. Um, the oil block is now pretty open. Um, it's open in the United States. Uh, Mexico's open to the world, but you know, I still think that the edge is probably for uh, U.S.-based uh, you know, exploration and development companies. And then you know, Canada is, is closed uh, for its own internal reasons, even if it wishes to be open. It's trying to open itself up, but uh, because of regulatory impediments, at least for the time being, uh, it can't export oil. And I would, the United States. Right, and I would I would agree. I think it's it's interesting if you look at um, if you look at electricity, we are seeing growing mutual reliance um, on each other. However, we could use a better connected grid, and the problem is often in the U.S. where, when the FERC in in 1996 decided to to deregulate, they also insisted that utilities in the United States couldn't own all three of transmission generation and distribution. And for the most part, utilities gave up transmission. So we have some weaknesses in our transportation grid. The President Obama's efforts at uh, building a smart grid notwithstanding, electricity could be one area in which we had an effective energy block still. Natural gas, there is an inadequate grid, but our, our gas is connected. We can see more and more um, feeding into the grid, taking out of the grid where we need. There's the potential there. And I think on oil, it's interesting. The Kennedy's Free Trade Agreement, because it did have provisions for energy, included something that Ronald Reagan very much wanted in that agreement, which was a commitment on the part of both Canada and the United States not to favor the domestic market over the foreign market uh, in times of energy shortage or oil shortage. This was an outcome of not only the first but the second oil shock, where in the second oil shock, Canada adopted a national energy policy that restricted, um, that was sort of a Canada first policy in terms of oil, and they took an independent view on, say, gasoline prices separate from world market. Um, not great for the Canadian economy, but the U.S. wanted to ensure that Canada would always sell to honor contracts and sell to American customers even in times of shortage and vice versa. Um, that could be the basis of a truly North American oil block. Not necessarily to say you won't export, we'll all export, but to say that we won't short each other in a, in a crisis, particularly in a, an oil shock. Um, 
But I think it comes down to infrastructure in both electricity, gas, and oil, all three. We have to figure out a way to knit our, our energy infrastructure together. And this is where I do think we come back to government, because while the private sector will eventually connect the grid where it's profitable to do so, in the interest of markets, that's good. In the interest of energy security, I think we need some redundancy, and I think we need some flexibility in that grid so that we can actually get energy where we need it to in an agile fashion very quickly in response to shocks. Now, that's something governments can plan for. Governments can lay out, as we do with so much other infrastructure, a master plan that anticipates growth and where we need interconnections, maybe even where the market doesn't see the value. Um, to make sure that we're going to be uh, ready when bad things happen. Now, that said, one last piece. I think we ought to have a true trade neutrality on energy. It doesn't matter where the molecule comes from or the, or the, the volt, um, so that we're able to export from anybody's ports. Uh, Canada may succeed in getting some LNG infrastructure ready. It already um, is falling behind on the Atlantic side, where we've been moving more quickly in the United States. But why couldn't Canada export natural gas in liquefied form from an American port and vice versa. In fact, uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which I mentioned earlier, going from Alberta, goes down towards Vancouver and has a spur line that goes to supply three refineries in Washington State that supply the American Pacific Northwest. Uh, at least two of those are in a position that, to be able to put oil on a ship now that oil exports are allowed. And I know the Canadians were looking at this seriously because while the Americans for a long time had that ban on crude oil exports, uh, Canada Canadian oil could be still exported, and they thought maybe that was an option for them as well. Paradoxically, um, it's going to go the other way first. It, 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 paradoxically, it's going to go the other way first. Maybe as a, just to pick up on, so that poor Representative Pompeo is not the only one to give a shout out to this, but in response to the earlier question, I think the other thing that would be nice is if the Jones Act was broadly exempted for North America. And you might say, okay, we'll still have the Jones Act for Chinese shipping, but to say that Canadian and Mexican flagships or ships that were moving back and forth could, could carry oil, I think that would help as well, because then the investment in shipping infrastructure could be mutual as well. But Maybe I'm dreaming. Yeah, and that's interesting. And of course, one of the spurs <clears throat> to making, from the, you were talking about from the point of view of the power grid, and, and, and building in the coordination and even the redundancy that would be involved with that, is the way in which that provides a first line of defense to cyber attack. Yes. <clears throat> because that'll be one of, that's going to be one, of, that's clearly become a key focus now in terms of our own vulnerability in the United States. Canada, less a target. Mexico, certainly less of a target. But the United States for sure, and to be able to have redundant systems that can go online when others are brought off, uh, and even to have old-fashioned lines, which you know, kind of like carry power, like they you know those photographs from, you know, from early 20th century New York, you know, with the forest of things. Even systems that are not, should we say, you know, totally smart grid. Some dumb grid is also pretty good because it would be less vulnerable to attack. Well, that might be a stimulus to that kind of, to that kind of thinking. Let, let me underscore that. One of the things we, we don't pay much attention to because we're living in the hub of North America here uh, in the United States, there are parts of Canada, particularly in the north and on, in some of the aboriginal communities on the coast, where they're using diesel to generate electricity. It's not environmentally friendly, but it's, um, it's what they've got, and they don't have the infrastructure to do better. Um, we have parts of Mexico that are operating using diesel I'm because sure. there's just no other generators. So if, if I were talking to our progressive leadership now, I'd say, well, if you care about the environment, why don't you try to connect to the grid some of these remoter parts of North America, uh, whether it's natural gas or, um, or electricity, not only for their economic development and well-being, but also in our long-term strategic interests. And that's something the market probably won't see enough benefit to doing, but government could, just as we used to do rural electrification here as a as a great national project. Questions? For our panelists. Yeah. Sam Miranda, retired nuclear engineer. I was just um, curious, could you do a, a brief comparison of um, the um, sources of um, energy, gas, or oil? Uh, uh, in Canada versus the United States in terms of private property versus public lands? Because I, I thought that might be an ex explanation for the sluggish response to the change in oil prices in Canada. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in Canada, it is the, the lands that are being exploited, particularly uh, for the oil sands and for what, uh, what shale development there is in Canada, Saskatchewan, uh, is on Crown lands. Um, however, 
I wouldn't attribute the uh, the sluggish, uh, so to speak, responsiveness uh, um, to that because the nature of the process of extracting oil um, when it comes to the oil sands is just so different that the uh, from a risk management perspective, uh, if one wishes to capitalize, you know, a uh, there's a huge difference between sinking, you know, two billion dollars into a project that you don't think is economic. Uh, versus, uh, and then you can't idle, by the way, um, with, uh, with, say, you know, collecting an inventory of, you know, one to three million dollar pop wells, which you can inventory, right? So uh, I think that, uh, you know, and, and there's no run rate cost. I mean, once you've essentially acquired, once you've, once you've drilled a well and you have it in your inventory, uh, you know, there is some decay cost uh, if you're not using it. Um, and some attrition of the uh, of the investment in it, but nothing compared to say leaving you know five hundred million dollars worth of trucks and heating machinery uh, doing nothing. So I think that the uh, the actual nature of the oil extraction process or the marginal oil extraction process in Canada and the United States is just so different that uh, it does well to explain. Uh, what's been happening in Canada, and what's more, there's a parallel, right? I mean, Canada is not the only high cost, uh, or sorry, high capex uh, energy uh, production jurisdiction, right? I mean, deep water uh, drilling of all kinds is at least somewhat analogous because the cost per well isn't going to be a million; it'll be tens of millions, or even sometimes as much as a hundred million dollars. And so, in those cases, we've also seen tremendous reticence, tremendous reticence to capitalize uh, new projects uh, in the last two years. And I think it's totally rational. Uh, I, I myself, you know, if I were in a position to make those decisions, would make similar decisions. And I think most of us would see things the same way. Well, let me underscore something about Dov's answer. It, so Canada has land in abundance, even resource wealthy land in abundance. Um, they two things they need: capital and labor, skilled labor to develop these resources. What's been driving Canada, interestingly, is its oil and gas are being developed by the private sector. They did have a brief attempt at creating a national oil company, Petro-Canada, but that's been sold off, bought up by, um, by Suncor. And so they're in the position of having very private sector resource developers, and that has provided the discipline. I mean, that's the translation of what Dov's saying, which is, you know, once you have those private sector people in, they're going to look at how they deploy their capital and, and the return rate um, very carefully. One of the things we saw when we were out west uh, with with my students was companies saying flat out that they were going to continue production at this you know, roughly three million barrel a day uh, pace simply for cash flow because they had to pay off debts, they had to pay off the financing of their equipment and they had sunk costs in actually the initial development. But that's why nobody knew was going to add capacity because they just didn't see the potential for a return. So it's, I think Canada is saved by that market discipline. Otherwise they might be making bigger mistakes than they are now, which is why going back to the sluggishness, that's why Mexico was so slow for so long, and they just timed their uh, opening up to the market badly, and uh, I just feel bad for them. It's tough. Crown lands. Doesn't that just have such a sound to it, though? And talking about the crown. And the people say that Canadians have no sense of romance. <laughs> um, next question. Other question? Yeah. Uh, Kent Meyercourt. Um, Last month, uh, for the first time, the uh, U.S. oil production uh, was less uh, than it was a year earlier. Um, the Energy Information Administration uh, predicts that we will produce over half a million barrels a day less this year than last year and over a billion barrels a day less uh, in two years. How does that relate to some of the more optimistic statements we've uh, heard here today? Yeah, so I think, I mean, to give a, a stab at that one, so the, the way these predictions are created is uh, by trying to model the decline rates of the shale, of the existing shale wells, and then making assumptions about the uh, willingness of uh, corporations to, uh, I guess, bring online the idled uh, you know, wells that uh, I showed in that chart of the so-called frack log um, moving forward. Uh, and I think that you know, those calculations can be wrong, um, but the underlying insight is right, right? The insight is that shale wells do have a decline rate, uh, that right now you know, prices are low, and some meaningful percentage of the uh, potential production 
that uh, was, av it was available um, at higher price levels now is irrational. However, um, this whole discussion misses the point. The point is that as the price goes up, they become rational again, right? So there's all of a sudden an inventory of deployable American oil at, a, at higher price levels than we have right now, but much lower price levels than we saw, say, three years ago. So this is a very important um, aspect of the shale revolution, so to speak. Uh, the shale revolution is not that the price is going to be low and remain low indefinitely at some low level that we can predict and, and point to. No one really knows what oil prices will be, and they're sensitive to, you know, as, as a panelist said uh, a few uh, you know, an hour or two ago, you know, a potential war between, say, two major oil-producing countries. Um, however, uh, in the long run, because of at least the development of this new source, uh, of which there's still a lot, and which is rational to exploit, exploitable rapidly, uh, and quantifiably you know, big, uh, America has at least a bullet in its energy uh, in its energy arsenal that it didn't have before. And I would just add that the EIA, I think, would would admit they didn't anticipate in, and couldn't really, because you can't necessarily hedge for things that uh, they didn't know that the U.S. would open up for oil exports uh, to the extent they has. And I think some of the our bullishness has to do with not just supplying North American markets, but being able to supply abroad, which will justify, if we can get decent prices, more production than we might have, at least in their estimates now. Do Canadians worry about EMP? Do they worry about uh, smart grid? Uh, just to choose two topics that are controversial in the United States. In the right circles, they do. Um, what's interesting about Canada, and, and it's a funny thing just to visualize, and I wish I had a good slide, Canada is 10% larger than the geography of the United States. They have a little bit more uh, real estate, but their population is only 10% of ours, and it is thinly stripped right along the border, so it, it looks more like Chile uh, sort of turned on its side than... Uh, than the U.S. And as a result, their energy grid has much less redundancy. And there's very little connection from one province to another. Uh, Ontario and Quebec have built a new tie line to be able to do more energy export between the two. But each province is largely its own little island for energy production. So with that comes both good news and bad news. The lack of interconnection means an EMP disaster in one place doesn't necessarily have quite the cascade to everywhere else, although it will have an effect on us. But the um, the downside is that there's no there's no ability to kind of recover from that by drawing from your neighbors. Um, this is something that British Columbia and Alberta have, have a dialogue on. Uh, British Columbia wants to build a Site C hydroelectric dam in northern British Columbia. Uh, Alberta said we'll buy that electricity as we move off coal only if you let us build pipelines across uh, British Columbia, and we'll see if that works. Um, but by and large, you know, if you look at Canada and an EMP vulnerability, uh, their biggest problem is just that limited infrastructure and how they're extremely vulnerable. And what I think more Americans should pay attention to is how vulnerable we are, particularly New England and New York, which rely on Hydro-Quebec um, quite a bit, and how some of the Midwest, including Minneapolis-St. Paul, towns we know well, are relying on Manitoba Hydro, and increasingly Washington State with the expansion of Seattle. Some of you are following the Columbia River Treaty renegotiations, all about power sharing, and both Vancouver and Seattle need more electricity, and there's not as much coming out of that dam as, as we'd like, the dams on the Columbia River. So we have a lot of inner vulnerabilities that we're going to have to figure out a way to solve, and EMP is a vulnerability we both have uh, that only more redundancy can help us be prepared for. So I guess the basic lesson is more power to all of us. And that may be partly through shale revolution, but through other kinds of changes that take place as, as U.S., Canada, and eventually Mexico now come to address sort of common issues having to do with both energy sourcing but also uh, energy distribution at the same time. I want to thank our panelists. And I want to thank all of you for coming to our conference on the geopolitics of America's shale revolution. Look forward to seeing you at the next conference. Thank you very much. <laughs>